Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today I'm going to start off with a recipe for garlic, lime, steak, and noodle salad. For most of the last decade or two, my dad was on a perennial low-carb diet, eschewing bread and often sugar, save for carefully chosen exceptions. When family would come over for dinner, he'd always tell me I didn't need to make anything special for him, but I enjoyed the challenge of coming up with a menu that would work for everyone. The results became some of my favorite meals to this day. Previously, dinner parties usually had a carb assault at the center, lasagna or spaghetti and meatballs or mussels and fries. But in these, protein and a great heap of vegetables get the spotlight. Chicken gyro salad, street cart chicken, one of my favorites in Smitten Kitchen every day, piri piri chicken, and many steak salads. As should be clear, these aren't bread or carb-free, but they're set up in an assemble-your-own style that allows the carb-rejecting to eat as they wish and the carb-demanding children to get into the meal, too. So everybody wins. This is one of the more recent ones. I jokingly call it the not-really-Thai steak salad because I was craving a flavor profile, not authenticity. It would be include noodles or greens or beans just for starters. It would have even fewer extras, and it's often served with rice if I were to make it more official. But the first time I made it, while it was delicious, I completely overdid it with the fixings. Chili lime peanuts, crispy fried shallots, julienne mango, sheesh, almost full-size salad bar of options. I was craving it again last Friday, but I vowed to keep it simpler trying to distill it into its most essential parts. It's the garlic, lime, and fish sauce marinade that I crave most. And I landed on this, and it was so good, it's officially in the summer rotation now. Because this is an assemble-your-own situation, getting the ingredient amounts exactly right can be tricky. If your people love noodles, you might need more. If they don't eat noodles, but they love steak, get extra. Half pound per person is a fairly safe bet for crowds. Some people love the dressing, my kids even. Others devour entire bowls of green beans before people arrive. That would be me. But while I've written below works for our family of four on a weekday night. The leftovers keep well too, so don't be nervous about scaling up. Here's the recipe. Garlic lime steak and noodle salad. Serves four, takes one hour, plus time to marinate. As we discussed when we made crispy tofu pad thai, fish sauce brands can vary a lot in their salty intensity, so any recipe that uses it should be adjusted to taste. It's not written this way below because the dressing should be all you need for flavor, but I usually toss my cucumber slices with a splash of rice vinegar, a splash of toasted sesame oil, and two pinches of salt, because certain small people in my family seem more inclined to eat them this way. One pound of green beans is probably a bit much for most people. They're a family favorite here, so I tend to overdo it. You need one quarter cup of brown sugar, light or dark, three to four tablespoons of fish sauce to taste, one third cup of lime juice, two to three garlic cloves, minced, 
Thai chili powder, red chili flakes, or thinly sliced Thai bird's eye chili to taste. One and a quarter pound of flank steak, three tablespoons of vegetable or another neutral oil, plus more for the grill, 8.8 ounces package of thin noodles, one pound of green beans trimmed, salt and freshly ground black pepper, eight ounces of cherry tomatoes halved, and 12 ounces of Persian-style small cucumbers, unpeeled and thinly sliced. About a half cup of chopped mix of fresh cilantro and mint. You're going to make the marinade and dressing by combining brown sugar, a smaller amount of fish sauce, lime juice, garlic, and chili heat of your choice in a medium bowl. Taste it. You want it to be salty and sour first, followed by sweetness and heat. I usually find that I need more fish sauce. Place your steak in a sealable freezer bag and pour in about one-third of this mixture and press all of the air out of the bag so it stays on the meat. Place steak in the fridge for about an hour and up to a day. I'm usually in a rush and I just marinate it for as long as I am prepping everything else. Slowly whisk three tablespoons of oil into the remaining marinade. This is now your dressing. Adjust the flavors, again, to taste, and then set aside until needed. Prepare the other salad ingredients. You want to bring a medium pot of salted water to boil. And for regular size green beans, cook them for 2.5 minutes. For Haricover, which is skinny green beans, cook them for 2 minutes. And then scoop out with a slotted spoon and drop into a bowl of ice water to cool, and then drain and transfer to a bowl. I use the water again to cook the noodles according to package directions. Mine say to remove the boiling water from the heat, add the noodles, and let them soak for five minutes until softened. Drain, place in the bowl, and set aside until needed. If they get sticky, you can run cold water over them or toss them with a splash of oil. To grill your steak, you're going to get your grill really hot and lightly coat the grates with oil. Remove steak from marinade and cook for about three and a half minutes and up to five minutes per side, depending on the thickness. Season both sides with salt and pepper as you grill. I did four minutes per side in the thinnish flank steak shape, flank steaks that are shown, but they were too medium for our taste, but your mileage, mileage may vary. <laughs> That's what it says, folks. Remove and let rest for five minutes before slicing very thin and putting on a serving plate. To serve, you're gonna place cherry tomatoes and cucumbers and herbs, each in their own bowl with a spoon for serving. I like to put out extra sliced bird's eye chili on the sides, splashing a little rice or plain vinegar on it for an extra kick. Put out your noodles, steak, and salad dressing too. A tiny ladle is ideal for the dressing. Because mine always separates, and this allows people to stir a bit in before spooning it over. Then to eat. Well, we like to start with a small pile of noodles, followed by a few slices of steak, big spoonfuls of each vegetable, a few chilies, and a ladle of the dressing, followed by the herbs. And don't skimp. They are perfect here. And repeat as needed. Next, we've got a recipe for pizza with broccoli rabe and roasted onions. 
It's not even January 1st yet, and I'm already feeling the tug of healthier eating, or perhaps more likely a rejection of the butter and braised blunt bender I've been on since Thanksgiving. Wait long enough to step up to the healthier plate, and I think your body will do it for you. In my days off, I have only craved three things. Greens, carrots, and oranges. Okay, four, if you count French toast from Le Grand Café. But in my defense, they serve it with toasted almonds and a slice of orange, and that's healthy, right? Well then, I think of homemade pizza as one of those perfect bridge foods. Not excruciatingly unhealthy, and yet it can be downright earnest if you do it right. We made Alice Waters' pizza with broccoli rabe, roasted onions, and olives for dinner on Friday, and it was delightful. Chock full of greens with just enough indulgence, half a cup of cheese, and a thin pizza crust to have me vowing I would make it again, like this week, before we'd even finished our first slice. This pizza also marks a tiny, silly triumph for me, and hopefully my first step on the road to liking broccoli rabe, Something everyone in the world seems charmed by but me. I generally find it too tough in an al dente kind of way and too bitter for me, but here, contrasted with the cheese and onions roasted until they're sweet and briny, lightly crisp olives, its bitterness was finely balanced out by its surroundings. I wish it were always this way. So here's the recipe. Pizza with broccoli rabe, roasted onions, and olives from Chez Panisse Vegetables. This makes one 12 inch pizza. You'll need one medium yellow onion, salt and pepper, olive oil, two sprigs of thyme, this is optional, one bunch of broccoli rabe, aka broccoli rabe or rapini, one clove of garlic, one pinch of hot pepper flakes, pizza dough for one recipe, and one half cup of grated mozzarella cheese, 16 Nichois olives pitted and one lemon. You're going to preheat your oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Dice the onion and toss it in a small oven-proof saute pan with a pinch of salt and enough olive oil to coat it lightly and the leaves of the thyme. Put the pan in the oven to roast, stirring occasionally until the onion is cooked and golden about 30 minutes. While the onion is roasting, wash and drain the broccoli rabe Remove the heavy stems and roughly chop the leaves and sprouts into coarse chiffonade. There should be enough to make about two cups. Peel and finely chop the garlic. Heat a large saute pan and coat it with olive oil. Add the broccoli rabe, season with salt, pepper, and the hot pepper flakes, and fry over high heat until the broccoli rabe is tender. Add the garlic and fry, tossing for a few seconds. When the onions are done, take them out of the oven and turn the heat up to 450 degrees to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Put a pizza stone in the oven and roll out a shape of 12 to 14 inch disc of pizza dough and slide it onto a floured pizza peel or the back of a baking sheet. uh, Lightly brush the dough with olive oil and then leave a one half inch border dry. Evenly sprinkle the cheese on the oiled surface and then spread the onions over and top with the broccoli rabe and the olives. Drizzle about one tablespoon of olive oil over the pizza. Slide the pizza onto the preheated stone in the oven and bake from five to ten minutes until the crust is brown and crisp. 
Remove the pizza from the oven, sprinkle a few drops of lemon juice on it, slice, and serve. That kind of dinner makes everybody happy. Now we're going to have some creme brulee French toasts, which might make me very happy. Filed under the very large category of things pretty much every New Yorker already knew about but was news to me, the City Bakery on 18th Street has some astoundingly good French toast on Sunday mornings. It's also astoundingly expensive, as things will go at a bakery with sweets like you can't find anywhere else and an iron grip on its original recipes. Their version is a ridiculously thick wedge of battered bread with a caramelized lid that requires no syrup or other accompaniment, well, except some crispy, salty strips of bacon, to make it sing. Of course, I'm not trying to make their French toast. I would leave that to their expertise. But I instead set out to make the French toast that I began fantasizing about the second I had my first bite, a creme brulee set with a thick, slice of bread, one that would keep the burnt sugar lid but gild the caramel lily even further and set it on a base that was more bread pudding-like than, well, honestly, imperfectly soaked, dry-centered French toast. The Soul City Bakery French toast flaw, in my opinion. Oh, blasphemy, I know. And I knew exactly how to do it. One thing I've learned when making French toast over the years is that as tempting as really crazy thick French toast is, no matter how low you keep the pan temperature and how long you keep it on the stove, it's very hard to cook until it is set in the middle before burning the tops and bottoms. The solution is baking, which is brilliant in that the center is guaranteed to set and you're guaranteed to enjoy cooking it more because it doesn't require you to stand over a griddle dipping and flipping slice after slice for surely longer than an entire tray of the same needs to bake. I could add no butter as a benefit, but come on, we're making creme brulee French toast here. This is no time to feign an interest in our arteries. The snafu me and poor little middle fingertip leading to countess, countless, oh, look what I hurt today. Humor attempts with my husband later. Yeah, you'd be correct in guessing that I'm the only person around her who finds me funny. Was in the burnt sugar lid. It being creme brulee, after all, I hadn't wanted to torch it, but the unevenness of the top of the toast led the sugar to pool in the middle and the edges to um, erupt briefly into match-sized flame and me to question whether my smoke detector even contained batteries. That plan swiftly scrapped, I decided to melt sugar the old-fashioned way in a small pot on the stove. And look, I know caramel stresses people out, and that's why we start with it with water and thermometers, but none of that is needed here. Add heat to sugar, give it time, and it will melt 100% of the time, and by the time it is fully melted, it will be the color of honey. Once it is, act quickly, but still not foolishly, i.e. Get, getting your middle or any figure in the 300 degree sugar's path. Pouring it over each slice and quickly use a butter knife or small offset spatula to spread it thinly over the tops. Too thick, you'll have what my first go at this did, a hard candy lid. Not that anyone complained between crunching smiles, but spread thin, you'll have hands down the best French toast I've ever made. Now, do right by your mama and make this happen on Sunday. Here's the recipe, creme brulee French toast. This makes six servings. 
You're going to need one loaf of unsliced white bread, brioche or rich bread of your choice, one and a third cups of whole milk, two-thirds cup heavy cream, four large eggs, one-third cup of granulated sugar, one-quarter teaspoon of fine sea salt or table salt, one teaspoon of Grand Marnier or another orange liqueur, or one-quarter teaspoon orange zest, one vanilla bean or two teaspoons of vanilla extract. For the topping, you're going to need some two-thirds cup of granulated sugar. Cut bread into one-and-a-half-inch thick, generous slices. A nine-inch loaf should yield six slices. Whisk together milk, cream, eggs, sugar, salt, liqueur, and vanilla extract if using. If using a vanilla bean, have it lengthwise and scrape the pulp into a small dish. Whisk the vanilla bean with one tablespoon of custard, then whisk in another and a third tablespoon, then pour the vanilla bean custard mixture back into the main batter. This avoids having vanilla bean clumps that don't disperse in your batter. Don't you just hate that? Preheat the oven to 325 degrees. Arrange bread slices on the smallest rim tray that will fit them in one layer. This encourages maximum absorption. And then pour custard over the slices. Allow them to absorb the custard for 30 minutes, turning the slices over at one point to ensure they're soaking it up evenly. As far as doing them ahead, you can also soak them overnight in the fridge and no need to flip them if you do it this way. Line a baking sheet with parchment paper. Transfer the custard-soaked slices to the prepared sheet, arranging them with a smidge of space between each to avoid making one French mega toast. Flipping them halfway through if you wish. Bake the French toast slices for 30 to 35 minutes until a slim knife inserted into the center of a slice and twisted ever so slightly does not release any wet custard. Keep warm until ready to serve. To caramelize the tops, you're going to either leave the toasts on their baking sheet or transfer to a serving platter. Have ready a small offset spatula and or a pot holder or trivet to rest your caramel pot on. Melt the remaining two-thirds cup of sugar in a small, heavy, completely dry saucepan over moderate heat, stirring with a small spoon or fork until fully melted and the color of honey. Move it over to the pot holder or trivet that, you'll be, that you'd set up, and working quickly, you're going to spoon one generous tablespoon of caramel over your first slice of toast. Spread it thinly and evenly with your offset spatula, and repeat with the remaining toasts. Because your caramel will continue to deepen slightly in color, veering towards almost too toasty as you work, it is best to work quickly but carefully. Let no fingers or forearms be harmed in the melted sugar's path, and should a single drop land on the counter or on your towel or in the rim of a plate, do not swipe it. Just leave it until it cools. You will burn your finger if you don't listen to this advice. Thank you. Hot water will melt all hardened caramel and make your cleanup job easy, by the way. Just simply soak your pot, spoon, or spatula, and all of it will melt off. Then, serve with fresh berries, and if you're feeling extra fancy, loosely whipped cream. We don't find that it needs any maple syrup at all. Here's an alternative top caramelizing method. A really obvious question here would be, 
but would the broiler work? The method would be to sprinkle each toast with one tablespoon of granulated sugar and let the broiler do the torching for you. However, my broiler doesn't work. It never has, so I cannot test this. But if it's anything like my attempt to use a blowtorch, I'm not feeling overly confident about it because the unevenness of the toast leads to edges singeing before the sugar fully melts. But if you try this method, please report back in the comments as to how it went. I am pretty sure that folks would prefer to avoid melting sugar. Next recipe, speaking of melting sugar, is for apple cider caramels. <clears throat> caramels, oh, one of my fave things in life. I just love them. So, friends, yesterday was the day, the day that the 336-page, 2.8-pound bundle of joy that I began working on over three years ago tiptoed cautiously out of my tiny kitchen in hopes that you'll make a home for it in yours. So, you know, no big deal at all. The Smitten Kitchen Cookbook by Deb Perlman. So what's in the book? Seeing as I already showed you the cover, I thought I'd show you what the book looked like naked. You will see I was pushing for a jacketless cover as we compromised by having a different cover inside that would be a treat for people who get excited about things like that. And between the covers, there are over 105 recipes. About two-thirds of them are savory, so the rest are sweet. Here's the recipe for apple cider caramels. This is from the Smitten Kitchen Cookbook. Apple cider, sometimes called sweet or soft cider, as I'm referring to it here, is different from both apple juice and the hard or alcoholic fermented apple cider. It's a fresh, unfiltered, meaning it has sediment, raw apple juice, the juice literally pressed from fresh apples. It's unpasteurized and must be refrigerated because it's perishable. In the Northeast, I usually find it at farm stands and some grocery stores. I occasionally find vacuum-sealed bottles called apple cider in the juice aisle, but none of the bottle varieties that I have tried has the same delicate apple flavor as the more perishable stuff sold in the refrigerator section. So that's what I use. So you're going to need four cups of apple cider, one and a half teaspoons of ground cinnamon, two teaspoons of flaky sea salt, such as maldon or less of a finer one, eight tablespoons unsalted butter cut into chunks, one cup granulated sugar, one half cup of packed light brown sugar, one third cup of heavy cream, neutral oil for the knife. Boil the apple cider in a three to four quart saucepan over high heat until it is reduced to a dark thick syrup between a third and a half cup in volume. This takes about 35 to 40 minutes on my stove. You're going to stir occasionally. Meanwhile, you can get your other ingredients in order because you won't have time to spare once the candy is cooking. Line the bottom and sides of an 8-inch straight-sided square metal baking pan with two long sheets of crisscrossed parchment. Set it aside. Stir the cinnamon and the flaky salt together in a small dish. Once you are finished reducing the apple cider, remove it from the heat and stir in the butter, sugars, and heavy cream. Return the pot to medium-high heat with a candy thermometer attached to the side and let it boil until the thermometer reads 252 degrees, only about 5 minutes. Keep a close eye on it. 
If you don't have a candy or deep fried thermometer, you can have a bowl of very cold water ready and cook the caramel until a tiny spoonful dropped into the water becomes firm, chewy, and able to be plied into a bowl. Into a ball. So you're going to immediately remove the caramel from the heat, add the cinnamon salt mixture, and give the caramel several stirs to distribute it evenly. Pour the caramel into the prepared pan, let it sit until cool and firm about two hours, though it goes faster in the fridge. And once the caramel is firm, use your parchment paper sling to transfer the block to a cutting board. Using a well-oiled knife, oiling it after each cut, trust me, follow through on that, <laughs> to cut the caramel into one by one inch squares. And wrap each one in a four inch square of wax paper, twisting the sides to close. Caramels will be somewhat on the soft side at room temperature and chewy and firm in, from the fridge. As far as doing ahead, caramels keep in an airtight container at room temperature for two weeks, but really good luck with that. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.